welcome to Shadow Playground, Thank a podcast you. that explores playfulness and the shadow underneath. And I want to dive right in with the first question of what is a playful experience in a group that stands out for you? What comes to mind first is the very first time I did oracular poetry. And the reason it stands out as a playful experience, so oracular poetry is a process to answer unanswerable questions using poetry in a group, which I would normally consider an activity, but not always play. And even sometimes a game and not always play. But in this particular case, the very first time I did it was at a gathering called Safe, and it wasn't. And, and I was leading it, so that was unfortunate. But the playful part was from the wind. And so part of the exercise, um, and people, if they wanna see the instructions, they can find them on, on my um, platform, Toolsy. But part of the instructions are that you cut out all the words of your unanswerable question, but the, we were on a hill and the wind was blowing. And so there was this aspect of kind of having to, to play with the wind and fight the wind. And, and you're always trying to hold these little pieces of paper and they're flying away. and that kind of the giggles and the liberation and the disinhibition and the impossibility of actually doing it seriously that really stands out and i think that there's something for me play is this kind of it just it can you can be doing almost anything and it can overtake you and become playful and and that that i don't know why that was the first example that popped into my head like that, that idea of the wind just coming and making it the entire experience this like playful chaotic uh you know poetic exploration of like will we find these words ever yes <laughs> what words will arrive almost like a tornado you know when they land back like oh the answer is there exactly the mystical exactly that's it what how would you distinguish an activity from a playful activity or play I think it has something to do, and I'm I'm really been thinking about this since a conversation that was initiated with my friend Emil Brion um, just last week. I think it that I would make the distinction somehow it's an internal state of liberation, an instern, an, an internal state of of disinhibition that that becomes playful. And it doesn't mean that there's no discipline necessarily. It doesn't mean that there's no rules. It doesn't mean, it doesn't even mean that it's fun necessarily, but this playfulness has this aspect of carefree to borrow a word from some work around consent that I've been doing with Emily Ye Claire. This carefree aspect I think is really important in play. And of course it has a shadow. Ooh, <laughs> like everything, hey? And yeah. I like, <laughs> I like how it. Um, you're talking about this, it's like the interior state. So in mm. theory, two people could be doing the exact same activity. Mm. Everything is the same, but one person has tapped into this inner carefree play state and everyone know, and the experience would be completely different. I think so. Mm -hmm. And I think they could even be doing that together and be in two different states. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. Doesn't yeah, I'm sure that brings up a whole lot of um that's a complex dance. Yes. And it has a lot to do with context and what is possible, what is available and attainable for somebody in a given space. Mm. You know, I've even definitely known children who don't always have access to play because of the kind of responsibility or the 
unsafe environments that they're in um, or internal states of, of responsibility or inhibition that make it impossible even for some young children to play mm-hmm. in, at a given time. Definitely, it's not a given. It's not a given. What is, um, you mentioned, you know, the shadow side of play. And I know that you're, you've done a lot, a lot, a lot of group facilitation in a lot of different contexts, and you are very familiar with different ways that shadow can emerge. What are some of the shadow sides of play that you have experienced or observed over the years? I think one of the aspects, when we think about disinhibition, the, that in that state, we can lose track of caring for others. And people can get hurt unintentionally in that mm. carefree state. It's not about being detached or careless. It's just that, you know, sometimes even, you know, the example I think of in my mind is like, if you're dancing and you hit someone with your elbow, I mean, you could really hurt somebody and that's just, there's no intention in it. And it's almost like play has has this aspect where intention is unregulated and it can kind of come and go and appear and disappear. And, and it's, it's this flighty other entity. It, and so in that, I think others can get hurt. And then there's a thing I think about play that has to do with, I mean, I guess in a, in a way it came up in your podcast with Parneet, like around what are the external states or other or, or, or later internal states that can land on us after we've been disinhibited? So why did I do that? Or are there social repercussions, especially for adults? Do I feel shame? Um, yeah, do I just do, do I feel too vulnerable? I think there's something there that's a bit shadowy. And then I guess the third shadow of the carefree or the, the, that liberatory is, you know, at what cost or who can have it and who can't, you know, so in a simple example that isn't, doesn't maybe have the political overtones of what I just said, like maybe a little child who in order to be able to play, someone has to be responsible and make sure there's no sharp edges and sharp things and there's a fence and there or whatever it is, whatever it is that keeps that something has to make that possible. So someone else has to maybe pay a cost um, or take a care in order for someone else to be carefree. Mm-hmm. Like how you're expanding the timeline, you know, saying like what okay, you're, you have that moment of carefreeness of play, what happens afterwards? Mm-hmm. And also you're expanding it beforehand. What happened beforehand to even make that container possible? Yes. So the notion of the, the sandbox just being there in the moment actually needs to be expanded. Mm. Mm-hmm. I have um, a memory from a, an art of facilitation training that you led. And it was we a group of people learning facilitation. And one of the participants led a group activity where we were forest animals. We were forest animals. That was the main idea, I would say, <laughs> with lots of framing and introductions and scaling up, you know, scaffolding, but essentially that was the heart of it. And we, we went very far, <laughs> we went very far into our forest animal roles. And the group was, I would say, delirious with, you know, with, I would say deliriously with pleasure, you know, crawling around the floor, interacting with each other. And I think it was just, for me, it was a, an incredible memory and an incredible um, 
sort of testament to the power of where you can go in a group when there are these playful offers and when the container is there. Uh, and I'm wondering for, for you, what, what are some of those parameters, some of those things that allow a group to get there? A group in particular. A yeah. group specifically. Is, yeah, that's very that's a very good question, which is so different than an individual. Uh, I would say some of the parameters are an, some baseline of psychological safety. Uh, I won't be attacked if I try something different. I won't be ostracized. You know, the, some a baseline. Uh, some familiarity with the others. I'm thinking of, it makes me think of, of uh, John Turner's clown school and what, you know, what allows those in incredible states of delirium to overcome a group. And, and one of the things I, I believe that, that he taught me was this idea of the ensemble. So what does it mean to have your senses so wide open that you can move together. You notice the breathing of the other, you notice the breathing of yourself, you see the subtle movement. I think that that in the case that you're, you're talking about the, <laughs> the, the forest animals experience, I think that was a big part of it is that our senses were heightened through the warmups and what had happened earlier that day that you're, you have like a perceptual scope that's bigger than usual and that allows you to play, be carefree with others because inhibition in almost by definition is a narrowing of the perception, you know? Mm -hmm. So, so I think that re those really, open, I, like I say, they're baselines of some kind of trust, some kind of safety, sort of either whether that you're self-generating that or like you've just agreed with yourself, it's worth the risk or whether you've been shown and shown over and over again that you won't be attacked in this space. I think that's the basic, but I think this thing about opening your senses is even more important in order to be able to have a whole group play together. That there has to be a noticing that goes far beyond the mundane sort of, I'm, I'm just, um, you know, I think we spend a lot of our time, reg, you know, in non-play time looking for cues and information data that's useful, but in play, you have to open that and all data becomes useful or none of it is. It's just, you, ha you have to have your senses open to the swirl of possibility and that's where the unknown can happen. And the playful can even take, catch fire. So I think there's something there about the tactile and the visual and the, or and everything is open. Um, and it's almost like to the degree that you're open is, somehow related to the degree to which you can be carefree and play. Mm -hmm. right. That idea of expanding your senses and to expand to the point that you have no choice but to be altered and enter into flow with the group. Yeah. That's what I mean by disinhibition. I guess it's a, it's a, it's a kind of transpersonal type of thing. Mm -hmm. I think that there was in that moment, for instance, in that forest, beyond the fact that we were no longer humans, you know, I think I was a slug at some point, it was incredible. <laughs> I think there was a sense of we had lost ourselves. There was that sort of dissolution of the ego, which, you know, so many people seek in these sort of thrill like experiences where for a moment, for a moment, you are not your little story, but you're connected to this bigger everything. 
and I can, I definitely think it's a pathway. I definitely think that that sort of group journey, playful journey is totally, totally a pathway. Mm -hmm. yeah. Did you, you made a, a distinction between the, as a group and as an individual, would you, is there anything that you would add for that sort of shift individually? So assuming you're not really in a group context, but you as an individual, you're wanting to kind of connect to the space within where there is that sort of playful sense of possibility. What, um, what would the differences be in your opinion? I think it can be a lot more internal. I mean, maybe that's obvious, but, but in the sense that I could, I can have a playful time without a lot of external expression, but then it makes it, that doesn't help anyone else to play with me. So I can have, you know, I think there's something there. And, and then there's a different type of trust in terms of psychological safety. It's more about the, the inner, the dynamic internally, the self-criticism. And there is this, when you're, when you're free of the gaze of the other, that kind of super ego, the social control is different. Of course, we've all internalized those voices as well, but what it takes for me to create enough trust in my everyday daily life is it's not easier. It's just different. It's a different, it's a different kind of self-talk. I have to make different agreements with myself. Like for example, sometimes the hard thing about playing on my own is is this a good use of my time? You know, this, the, the social conditioning that I should be working or building relationships or so, something should be useful and play. It has no usefulness like in that way. It doesn't have a, a it is useful, but it doesn't have a use function. So I think tr tricking myself into the state of play is very different than the heightened delirium that can catch this kind of like it's almost like a feedback loop in a group i don't find i have maybe some people do but i don't find i have that alone i more have to like give myself the space and give myself the time and say you know it's just yeah it's harder to find mm -hmm. that it's harder to find that impulse and give myself that permission and when i do it's a lot deeper than I could ever go in a group. Mm, really interesting. Yeah. And where when you when you do uh, reach those inner spaces and you go deep, what comes up for you when you do find a way of you know tap dancing, uh, telling yourself a story, like be like whoop whoop to the side, to the left, to the left, to the right, and like oh I'm here. What often comes up for you in those spaces? That's, That's a, a good question. question. Yeah, it's a really good question. I don't. I mean, without getting into like the details of different content of art making or playmaking, which are not the same thing. Um, it's, I guess in a way, a lot of it is shadow material, not necessarily, you know, Maleficent or anything like that, but like stuff I hadn't thought of, stuff that's in the shadow, like the unknowns kind of, um, it's a dreamy kind of quality in that way. Yeah, there's a dreaminess and it could go anywhere. Yeah. There's also like what you were what you were mentioning is that there's these huge voices of productivity being, you know, efficient, 
of making relationships or doing something that has value. And I think it's one of the emancipatory aspects of play is to even say, can I even take time to do whatever I want with no reason, objective, progression? I'm not even getting better at it. Maybe it just is. And and there's there's that side. So sort of, I would say, sidestepping those voices. And there's also the, the emancipatory side of allowing yourself to be in pleasure. And regardless of how people might be judging you. So if you're maybe sitting down, you can imagine, let's say a tip, an example of someone in a park. So you might see someone on the grass kind of like petting the grass or, you know, just <laughs> kneading the ground with their hands. Mm-hmm. And it'd be very easy to go in. I mean, you could, you could make, you could immediately all the questions, the judgmental questions, like why is this person not working? What are they mm-hmm. doing on the ground? Like, what is this? How is this helping the world? Mm-hmm. Any, any, whatever, whatever kinds of, I would say, very sort of capitalistic, um, uh, you know, economic framework questions. Or you could go to really just being like, oh, this person is enjoying. They're enjoying themselves in a world where we're taught to always be productive, to not uplift our own pleasure. And so there is this aspect of. Um, of providing yourself spaces of freedom in a in a world where we're not invited to do so. That's it. And I think sometimes we can overlay a, a type of activity that would that would be that n- nonsense or that kind of uselessness, which is related to sort of timelessness, like that that the open the open right. I think, but one one of the things I discovered over the last couple of years with my project, the time zone, was that even something as intense as like st- study can be play. And I, what I had to do was kind of take away a lot of the burden of what makes this effective, what makes this efficient. Are we, what are we taking away from this? How are we grasping this? And, and instead just st- study in a group for pure pleasure and without wanting anything from it. And it became so profound that we were able to find real play, moments of real play, reading texts about physics and ethics and anthropology and medicine and and reading together but having it still be hilarious and playful and intense and surprising and unknown because it's it's an it's an approach it's this inner state of not succumbing to effectiveness and usefulness and so that makes me think like a much bigger question like what are transactions that are playful you know, what is a whole, what is an economy of playfulness where it's not about the future and it's not about predicting what's going to happen and shoring ourselves up with capital to make sure that we're safe against the future. But instead, it's this open exchange. And I wonder about evolution and how, and mutation and how those things are related to the the, the open exchange, you know, that in the infinite possibility is like where really, where does the platypus come from? <laughs> you know, is Great that, question. is that play? Is that nature's play? Mm-hmm. And 
disinhibition and and playing coloring outside of the lines mm. and you had in that space you were speaking before about you know the, the 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 time and effort beforehand to set up beyond the sort of 20 years of facilitation experience you had <laughs> you also set up very conscious parameters of saying you could arrive at any point leave at any point you didn't need to do the readings you very specifically allowed all kinds of intervention, like all kinds of comments, questions, ideas, art, everything to be there. So that's that those things contributed to that playfulness being there, even while reading these physics texts. Yeah, taking away the discipline of mm -hmm. it. Yeah. And what are what are the academic disciplines without their discipline? Well, their play. <laughs> <laughs> It turns out it's really fun to not understand together mm. and to, to get what you get just to get whatever comes is enough and and, and it was amazing how much we really learned mm. it was so ambient i didn't even really realize it for for many 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 months and when i started to realize it it was like almost like a seeping like knowledge and 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 uh, yeah, knowledge and this knowledge making project that was more like dew forming on the grass. Like you just like, wow, how did that, where did that come from? <laughs> you know, it, it didn't rain and yet it's wet. <laughs> it was like that. It's like, I didn't, I didn't work and yet I learned. And there you go. The, that's, that's incredible. We're taught that you need to work to learn. And you're like, yeah. but I learned that I wasn't working. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and how do children learn their mother tongue, you know? It's not work in that same sense. Mm. What was the difference? You were also, so this sort of time zone exploration of time, there was also in parallel uh, star holders, star holders with, with children, which was, a, you know, an exploration in its own right. What was the difference? Because you're, you're naming that the time zone was a space of learning and play, and you're doing a space of learning and play with children. What was the main difference you saw between those two spaces? That's a great question. I, I, it, it's on, it's on a spectrum. I would say the children were extreme in their play, <laughs> and we, as in the adult time zone, we needed, uh, we needed the readings. We there was a sense that something was happening, that was necessary to get people in the door, to get to 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 garner enough energy to do it every week. There had to be a sense of gravitas a certain gravitas that brings you to the play as an adult on a wednesday you know a lot of people coming from work or you know whatever like finding time on a wednesday during the day but these these little ones who ranged from um they were sort of two at the youngest point and sort of 16 at the oldest as we did this over two years and then the adults who were also in the group um I would say the real difference was the disinhibition. If you think of it in levels, they were off the chart. Like anything could happen. Causality itself was not necessary. We didn't have to account for it. Anything could become anything. You could, your name could change at any time. You could, you could be battling an ink squid and nobody else even is in, connected to this ink squid, but there you go, you're battling on and on with it. And it and there's there's this um, there's this see what what happened was I believe we entered the the young people's paradigm of knowing their way of knowing and this playful 
connectedness is necessary at a developmental level because there isn't enough layered data to make the world make sense at the two-year-old level. And so, and we, and because we had to play there, we all just, we learned this way of being. And I have to tell you the research there was extraordinary because it was a causal. They would very often um, anticipate understandings that would come in the adult time zone later, like weeks later, like ideas that we hadn't even encountered yet were already forming and being played with at the star holders. And see, it wasn't hilarious. They weren't playing, it wasn't delirium like our forest animals were when you get adults to a level of inhib disinhibition. This was a, it was a way of being that was quite intentful and serious to them. It was just disinhibited. So I, I, you can see that I'm still trying to understand what happened there. I, I don't fully have the language for it, but it was quite extraordinary because we were seriously playing at the mm. starholders. And what, I mean, just for the audience's sake, what we were doing was co-storytelling and drawing. So we were just like on, we were on Zoom and we would just tell these stories, adventure stories through the ocean, the cosmos, a lot of portals and interdimensional travel, a lot of alien encounters, things like that. And we would just tell the story and we were the characters in the story, a little bit like Dungeons and Dragons, but with no rules and no storyteller. It would just, we'd all co-tell the story. And sometimes we would speak at the same time. So many things could not be heard. And it would just go, it, it created this like thickness and atmosphere and we would just play in this atmosphere and develop narrative ideas. Like this has happened rather than this is a thing, right? There's no abstraction in it. We were just in it playing. And then now and then we would make maps and draw and things like that. M more to um, give a little bit of breath inside of the intensity of the storytelling. Mm. And, you know, I would come with suggestions and very often they would just be completely ignored and, and go on a different direction. And then other times the suggestion would be taken up and it would be the, the, the case, what we were working on that entire time. There was no pattern I could discern. There was no, it was impossible to tell what was going to happen at start. I, I'm talking as if it's in the past, but we're still doing it. We've done like 70 episodes now, I think. And they love it. They ask for it to come back. They take their precious weekend time to do it. Um, I think the main difference between that and the time zone was that the time zone needed a false, like a fourth wall. We're studying. Let's learn about time in order to make it happen. Starholders didn't even need that. It was like, let's get together. Now we're playing. Because it's the mode that they, it's the light, it's the world, it's the, what would I call that? The worlding, the, the world building, the, the laws of the world building in there in the child's environment when they were just, because we had, there was nothing they weren't allowed to do. It wasn't like a school environment where we were trying to teach them something. And we weren't observing them either. It was just like, we're just playing together. And there was shadow in that too. There was shadow in that too. There was a lot of like, especially with the, siblings who would be on zoom together there would sometimes be arguments or 
we would get into quite dark spaces, mm-hmm. like quite a lot of violence in the play. Mm-hmm. And we just let it happen. Mm. Let it resolve itself, work itself out. These were pandemic years. There was so much angst in everybody. And then I think we processed a lot of that anxiety through play that had a lot of violent imagery. Mm. There's um, such a sense of you really allowing that space to be itself and not wanting to control it or say this is, oh, that imagery is not right or this story isn't right, I have a prompt. It's like, it's, it's literally the exact opposite of school where you're telling people what they need to learn. And there's also the side of what you're saying around, um, you said before about opening up your senses. Mm-hmm. In this case, you're expanding that to say, not just your senses, literally, is actually expanding your mind, take in another worldview from someone who's two, for instance, and mm-hmm. saying, I'm going to expand into that. And so that's, that's a next level, um, you know, it's a huge level of sensitivity and really it's listening, not necessarily just the senses, you're listening to the underlying mind <laughs> that's in the room and seeing where can we go together where all these minds can, can connect. That's it. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering what, you used that word a while ago, the word useless. And I'm wondering what is useless? What is yeah, useless for you? To me, useless is also related to the word abject. Or, you know, it's something about being impossible to capitalize on. Can't be, it's very slippery. Things that are, you. I, I have a high value on things that are useless. And um, I, I don't know, you remember when I did that art project, Travel Well? Does that one, do you remember that? The no, I remember of, that. They were those pieces of plastic that um, they're like single use plastic, like cheese, wrapper, straw a straw, things like that. And I, I sat with them for about a month and then I painted them gold and then I made little companions out of that shrinking plastic, mm-hmm. shrinky dinks, to travel with them. And I, I think that was really where I, that was the, the place where I really learned and, and was explicit with myself about how important these useless things are to me. Things that have lost their use, things that have gone beyond their use. And I, I think that for me, what is there is the world that used to be the world that hasn't got a lattice of value. How valuable are you, right? What kind of commodity are you? And, and, and everything that is abject and everything that is useless is, it belongs to what came before. I, I see it somehow like that, like it's what hasn't been able to be captured by this sort of transnational scooping up of the world's preciousness. There's something about not making another person, I feel this in our relationship a lot, like not making the other person an instrument of your own success, but mm-hmm. instead, instead, they're not, it's not about what they're good for, what they're used for. It's just enough to be. And those plastics, I became so attached to them. I still am, you know, I just became so attached to, to, and, and, and the poignancy of their uselessness and how they would last for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years, never necessarily gaining a use. What would that mean? What does that, 
what does that mean for a being, for an entity to not be recognized in a capitalist structure? And of course, it's very easy to think of how many people, human beings and animals and various kinds of trees and water and all kinds of things are considered useless until they can be sucked up. Hmm. Prisoner, prisoners, for example, right? Like how, how they, they're useless until they become commodities of the private institution. It's, to me, it's a very important category. And it's, it is related to play because play is useless. And play is abject in that way in the, in the, in this, especially in learning environments. And of course it gets, it, you know, that's, I'm not naive in the sense that I know, you know, big multinationals also use, like Exxon, also use play to create their strategic futuring and thinking about how do we get more, more oil and gas out of the ground and into the cars. So it's not that I, I don't think it's like, um, it's not a, it's not about a utopia. It's about freedom from commodification. And that even that can be an internal state. Am I commodifying my time? Am I commodifying my own ideas? Yeah, and that commodification it can apply to everything. It can apply to how we are passing our time, how we are uh, considering our relationships. That's how can I use you? It is how do we, yes, the objects that we throw away. And there is this. And what you're saying is this, there's this turning away from the tide. There's this, there's a tide, there's this going and saying this, this world is about taking and using, you know, you work, you take, you use, you throw away. And I hear in, in that project and just generally stepping to the side and saying, what about this piece of, piece of plastic? Is it not also beautiful? Is it not also part of our lives or taking, stepping aside to say, I don't want to do anything today. I want to actually, I want to just dream. And everyone marching ahead, and there's this, there is like a, a stepping away from the current, and having the the really the, the boldness, the boldness, the courage to say this current is not the only path, and there's another path that's actually full of mystery and wonder and possibility. I feel that very strongly. Every time I've given myself the opportunity to take a risk, like I feel my world has expanded so much. Mm. When you are entering into a space to facilitate and you're with a group that is not at all, <laughs> at all, you know, in this, that space, and perhaps we listen to this conversation being like, what are they talking about? <laughs> <laughs> or, <Hi. laughs> it makes sense. Good for you for listening for so long. <laughs> yeah. And so you can imagine going to that room and then having, and you're as part of the workshop objectives or the training objectives, you're wanting to go to a place where you're perhaps allowing people to step sidestep that sort of that, that idea of productivity and what it means to spend time together. What are you going to do in the first minutes to immediately um, begin switching things in a very light way? It's a good question as because, you know, sometimes it's not, sometimes it's not appropriate. So well, let's put that to the side. Um, like, even if people are asking me to come in and do that, sometimes you get in the space and you're like, it's not, there's no psychological safety here. So it's not going to happen. So there I have to go back many steps, right. And start saying, okay, let's build some psychological safety very slowly. How do I gain your credibility? And sometimes that's not about being 
disinhibited. It's about being very disciplined, responsible, accountable, you know, and sometimes it, it can take a lot of time to build that trust in a place where trust has been broken. So th that's, you know, that's an, ex there's an extreme there. But people who are just in a culture that's more straight, if I can put it that way, then, you know, like, I guess my first example is about a group that's, got, that's in, in some state of trauma and need care in a different way and that disinhibition could be disastrous um, or frightening you know or the hierarchy so strong that it could have repercussions so if we think of that as one extreme and then we say yeah sometimes there's just a culture of not playing and people are kind of uncomfortable they feel shy uh, then i think it's all about finding the little cracks so for example like you're asking about the first couple of minutes right so that has a lot to do with my own energetic presence so i have to come into that space already with my heightened senses um, and those are physical practices and meditative practices and tough stuff like that and to, to appear in the room already open so that i can present a resonance that's possible it's very subtle people just feel it also you know taking I, I i like to take i learned this from hanif fazal that the way that i present myself matters and sometimes i have to take the hit of of feeling you know people not finding me maybe as credible as someone else in order to truly express my authenticity in the moment and just let let it be, let it be, you know, and, and let the chips fall where they are. So there's something about a carefreeness I need to walk into the space with energetically. And then um, and then it's about those first offers. So what's the role of color? What's the role of music? What's the role of food? What's the role of a circle instead of chairs in a row? You know, these are certain first impressions people get the signal to them something is going to be different here. What's the role of crayons or child, the implements of childhood? How do those affect the space? Where could they be placed? How, what's it like to have a manual sitting on your chair that you're going to sit on and a pen versus a crayon and a blank piece of paper? What's the impact of that in the, you know, so those kinds of set up questions. Um, and then, um, and then sometimes, as you well know, I will just jump right into the play. And that, you know, like, let's dance, let's move, let's make some music. And that can be very, very scary for people. And that's my opportunity in that moment when they're afraid, which is normal. And I welcome it, that, that I show them with my whole being and my whole body. And that's why it's really important how I walk into the space myself, that um, I'm not going to judge them. And that if they don't do it, it's okay. That's really why I make that offer. I pitch a very high offer that most people are nervous about and some people very, very probably won't do. And then I show them that that's okay. That I will not force you and I will not push you. And this is not, this is not a, you don't have to perform anything here. And that, that, those are how I'd spend the first few minutes is really signaling to the group that it's okay to come play play will come and go it's not it's not their responsibility or mine mm. <laughs> you know 
they can't fail if it, if there's a if they can fail at it it's not play you know even if it's a game you know it's a game and i like again how you said you I'm can lose at play you can lose you can lose <laughs> while you're playing but you can't fail you know? ah good distinction yeah, yeah. And I think I like how you're, that, that, that distinction at the beginning of are saying, not a distinction, saying you can't even go there. It's not even worth it going there if there's not psychological safety. And if there's, if there's, you haven't talked about repercussions in a hierarchy, because it's actually, of course, no one's gonna wanna do anything if, um, if there's risks, those, those risks are so inherent. I've also heard you speak about, you know, uh, multiple points of entry and points of exit perhaps as well mm -hmm. so that people are, are really being woven into something where they say okay I, I have my liberty I can jump in if I want to mm -hmm. and I can also leave yeah yeah the uh and also what you're saying about that clown like thing like maybe your credibility like you're going to come in and you're going to say some things do some things like is, like, is she serious <laughs> like is what <laughs> is and just being like just trusting like having uh, you, you know trusting there's, there's this the whole i mean the philosophy of clowning is that we are inherently fallible flawed bumbling beings <laughs> and that's kind of at odds with the image of the professional facilitator coming in all ready smooth you know good deodorant on yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah but in, in some ways there is a liberatory side to that because by you being flawed and bumbling and like maybe you have like a coffee stain on your shirt then it's like maybe they can be like oh maybe maybe i can i can um i can be here too and i know that that sense of status and that john turner that clown teacher you mentioned plays with you know he's very incredible teacher incredible clown and he lowers his status you know kind of slouching in the chair saying things as though he hadn't thought about them for years and years and years that's it that's it and it's a it's a careful balance in a work environment yeah, it really depends on where your values are, what what matters. And I see a lot of facilitators in, you know, in kind of training scenarios where those risks really aren't worth it to them because they don't, they've never been on the other side of play. So they don't know. And there is a lot to lose. You could lose your whole group. You could lose your gig, you know. It's happened to me, definitely. People are like, well, this is not really what we're looking for. Well, that's okay. Um, so yeah, until you know what's on the other side of, of stepping out of that current of productivity and that there's like a, there's something beyond productivity that it's where innovation lives. You know, it's where the unknown lives, so even in a corporate environment, even an NGO environment, these risks have a function to play, but mm -hmm. they can't be, they can't be turned into efficiencies. So what, you know, I, yeah, it just depends. It really, it really has to be a fit for the group. Mm -hmm. I know mm -hmm. that lots of people use like improv and stuff like that in groups like theater improv to like break ice and, and stuff like that. And I think that that is a bit of a different, that is, that's like, in, that is instrumentalizing games to do work in a group. Right. And I'm, I'm not against that, but I don't think that's play. I wanted to ask you or bring up that in this uh, podcast exploration, one of the premises that we're exploring 
I say we because it's me and other people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> me and my team are exploring this is bringing a playful spirit to our most challenging situations. Ooh. So by challenging situations, I mean, I mean being triggered. I mean conflicts. I mean insults. I mean moments when our nervous systems are freaking out. We are shutting down. And what I have noticed is often in those moments, all we can talk, talk, talk about playfulness. We can talk about exploration. We can talk about, you know, these sort of this internal posture. And the moment things get tough, the moment people are scared, feeling not safe, then there's like this, um, all that goes out the window. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> we, go, <laughs> we go back to command, control, power okay. over, um, prediction defensiveness prediction yeah and for me there's a real I sense there's a possibility in this zone that we never actually are able to explore because we don't have practice and it's not even showed showed as a possibility and I'm wondering I guess the question I'd like to ask you is how do we bring a playful spirit to experiences that are difficult or painful or triggering or just that are bringing ourselves to this really dark place Mm, that's such a good question. Two things pop to my mind. One is psychodrama. And so being able to move in and out of the self, the self as a practice. Um, I remember the podcast I did with Madhu Shukla and she is talking about that. She, in the podcast, she has me become a book. And just the, the, the other forms of knowing other ways of knowing access to other wisdoms that are really, really helpful in highly activated states. The transpersonal, being able to, to, as a practice, get out of my own way, get out of my own head. Or my friend Evan talks about it as the small room in the big room. Like, so I'm, I'm in, you know, how can I get a wider perspective through regulation um, of my nervous system? intentfully to get not to get over the problem to get another view of it so that comes to mind the other thing that comes to mind right away is creative visualization and so visualization practices that are nervous system regulating that are that are you know what's your safe place what are your anchoring gestures those kinds of things that that can at least move the dial a little on how inhibited or contracted we become when we're afraid why we want to go into control and prediction in those extreme states, then it's like what I see it as is we're moving in the direction of play. Play may not be possible at all, but if we turn towards it in the imagination we can have a little breathing room and slowly build new capacities. You know, I feel that I, you know, I want to be careful in what I'm saying here because I don't think that's play. I don't think those practices are play. I think those are the gifts that a practice of play can give you in times of trouble. I think it's, again, I think it's how very often how children heal from the traumatic events of their lives is by working it through in the imagination. 
they're in both the, the case of the room or with the imagination or the gesture. It's like almost like you're I have this image of like a lasso or something that's mm. making you expanding your worldview mm. in a moment when you're wanting to shrink. Mm-hmm. There's this, um, and that's that's even mm-hmm. shaking, right? Like instead of dancing, but like that jiggling, kind of bouncing and shaking, it approaches dance and the disinhibition of dance in certain dance styles. But it is just, it's just like the baby step towards that. Mm-hmm. And there's like that sense of it being informed by playful practices. And perhaps that moment, it's not a f- this pure form of play, but I think it's also something, again, the notion of being like, we need to be in a hundred percent play state or not is also, <laughs> it's that same thinking of, we need to be doing this like productive, like I'm a hundred percent in a play state right now. I'm not, <laughs> we're going to playfully engage in this anger. <laughs> it's like, yeah. no, it's like, can you do a little That's, bit? Can you try yeah. something? Can you, can you imagine something that would be helpful in that moment? Exactly. Yeah. And I think those are, that's, you know, there's a responsibility almost if I wanted something like that to continue when times are good to build the practices so that the handholds are there when I'm deep in my own shit, as it were, that they've already been built and it's already there. And I know how to get there. I feel like if I'm, if I'm trying to start from scratch and don't really know what my tools are, those intense states really do take over. <laughs> so it's like the, 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 the prep beforehand to be like, okay, right, these tools I've made, I have a toolbox, I have techniques because in the moment it could just be too much. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't just mean like knowing you have techniques, which, you know, once, you know, you and I, like, you know, we've been exposed to this kind of idea for so long. You can't really forget that play exists at this point, but I mean, chops like staying up to date, like, like practicing daily or, or, or weekly significantly amounts of time given to this liberation internally. It doesn't stop you from having terrible events happen, but it's with you as a practice, a living practice, not just an idea. Hmm. Yeah. And those practices, they need to be in the body. They, they just, mm-hmm. they do. It's not just, I feel like them. my clown work is very far away now. You know, mm. I really do. I'd like, I'd really like to, to return to that as a practice because it doesn't feel alive in me. Mm-hmm. And it's an embodied, Yeah. It's a, what would your clown self be saying right now? If you were to ask it, how's it going? Yeah. It's like totally like flat. You know? <laughs> like, <"Bleh." laughs> how, how can you even ask me that? You know? <laughs> seen you in so long <laughs> i love that said it's like how can you even ask me it's been so long yeah, it's like, exactly. <laughs> it's so there's this this is fun a practice i had heard of where it's you, you use the specific formulation of sentence which is um isn't a conflict situation where you say the story i'm telling myself is mm. and it's an interesting one because it, it allows you to say whatever you say following that is you know in some ways it's playful because you're actually just Say whatever you want and know your feelings. It's like, not true. It's, it's not true. I'm so like the story you. I'm telling myself is that you are selfish and ignorant and you are focused solely on your needs and they're ignoring me and have been doing so for months. <laughs> and but because you're 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 adding that parenthesis hmm. of like, this is my story. 
And I think it's that, that kind of little thing where suddenly it reminds us that we are, oh, right, we can take a breath. This is a story. We're both in a huge stories right now. And I think one thing I'm in conflict I really, I really leaned into is um, how much the two stories are drastically, drastically different. I mean, it feels like it's like not even the same situation. It feels like they're talking about two different relationships. So being able to just acknowledge that and be like, okay, this is, there is a side to this, which is comical. And it's always comical because it is always so different. <laughs> exactly. This is a, this is such an interesting point you bring up here, which is around the inner perpendicular, the inner hilarious things that are, that don't fit and how in a conflict situation and in a lot of really of the hard situations in our lives, there is this aspect of the paradox. There is this aspect of the things that don't fit together. And in there is this mm, potential for flexibility, movement, laughter, s- s- distance, new perspectives. You know, you can, there's mobility, laybility, lay, you know, you can be labile inside of even the hardest situation if you can see the paradox in it. You know, and these entrenched conflicts is one of the great kind of blessings I would say of being a conflict mediator is that you get to see over and over again that there's no truth. You know, and eventually that's well, I mean, I of course I always think in a conflict, I, I still think I'm right. <laughs> but and that that happens, it's the knee jerk that happens, but can I find that flexibility? It gets easier and easier to find that that realization that things are just they're always moving internally. Mm. This is these two lines is such a it, it speaks to the hilarity of it. Yes. Because because and it speaks to the absurdity of thinking that we are ever right. <laughs> and it's there is like a I mean I did a, a mediation course, I trained mediation, and they mentioned that one to move through a conflict, each party needs to grieve accessing the truth that's beautiful and they need to grieve it and once you've grieved it and you're like okay (laughs) okay what is anything i thought i had the the absolute truth from there you can begin actually listening and actually moving on to finding something that will meet meet both people where they are because of their interests their needs their desires yeah yep do you have anything you would like to add to close off our conversation on uh, this shadow playground conversation? You know, one thing is, I, one thing is this, like there's a kind of play that you and I sometimes get into that has, that isn't hilarious, but it's a lot of fun, which is when we don't know where we're going and we just walk and take the turns and let the world tell you where you're going. I think from, that's one of the simplest ways, I think, to access what we're talking about here is to go for a walk without a destination. It's so, you don't have to access any kind of delirium or hysteria or anything that's embarrassing or, you know, I think that's what keeps people away from play Mm. is the internal and external social repercussions. And, but play can be so subtle and simple in that Mm. way, just to, just to not know, just to get into a state of not knowing and follow that can really mm. kind of be enough. That is enough and, it, and it's exciting and it's unknown and it doesn't need the huge emotional high. Mm-hmm. It can simply be in that gentle 
Mm -hmm. a gentle turn left turn right and there's a beauty to that i will add that one of our one of our explorations that was just so beautiful when we 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 were walking and we did happen to reach a state of sort of amazement at the sky there was a sunset that day that kind of i think i I I remember yeah that sunset i think it brought us to new heights and we wouldn't have we weren't planning it we weren't trying to get there we weren't trying to go anywhere and then while walking along the path this sunset was just there that just blew blew me away blew us away yep that's it that's how that's how that happens isn't it if i am trying to control the world i very often will get the results i thought i was going to get or not or less or less but yeah those kinds of surprises i don't know are they always hiding somewhere i don't know that's a perfect ending question. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Thanks for the conversation, Nadia. Yes, it was really fun. I'm really glad.